There's a saying by Sri Nisargadatta that always made sense to me um, because it resonated with how I actually feel in, inside myself in relationship to life. And that is, love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two my life flows. So tonight I'd like to speak about the interrelationship between love and wisdom and um, how each one of those nourishes and makes the other one evolve ever more deeply and beneficially. It's said that after the Buddha's enlightenment under the great Bodhi tree in India 2,600 years ago, when he profoundly opened to understand and realize the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility for the cessation of all suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. He said, the advancement of the holy life to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana, which means to the unconditioned, is the reason for the Eightfold Noble Path. It said that even with this rare and precious understanding that he had at that time, he was still reluctant to offer the teachings to those around him. And he, it, it said that he thought that listeners without direct experience would be stuck in conceptualizations about the practice, about the teachings, and would misunderstand what he said unless they actually practiced for themselves. It can't be just theoretically understood, it needs to be experientially understood, this Dhamma, these Four Noble Truths. And to make that longer story short, it said that what happened to change his mind about that is he had compassion about the suffering in himself and in the world. And uh, it's because of that compassion that he went on to offer what he had understood deeply to the world. He said that um, he was influenced by um, a celestial being who came to him. And he agreed with the celestial beings in, in understanding that in the world there are those with little dust in their eyes, little dust in their eyes who could take in and apply these teachings and trainings and understand the Four Noble Truths, realize them for themselves. And so um, that always makes me feel really happy that maybe I'm a person with a little dust in my eyes, because here I am and so are you, <laughs> listening to these teachings, practicing them. It said that in opening to that suffering, compassion arose in his heart as a strong and natural inclination to teach, to offer the Dhamma. So these precious teachings we're all benefiting from are coming to us from this blessed energy. It's a, really such a direct connection to me, something that I feel palpably when I 
open to the teachings. I'm, I'm in a place, a role in my life where um, I give the teachings, I offer them. And so it helps to remind me all the time of this. That this great compassion, this blessed energy, is what we are riding on in the Dhamma. In an old journal, I found a passage where I'd written about a quiet desperation I was having. And I described it that way to Manindraji. And I said, um, I, I don't know what I feel, but it's just like a, a desperation, a quiet desperation, and everything's pretty good in my life. You know, I had come from the Philippines to America to uh, raise my children, and it was hard, but still it was what they call first world problems. <laughs> you know, I'd been in the Philippines and I knew what it was to have third world problems by being amidst it. But um, I was in a pretty good place, although I heard inside of me this quiet desperation that I really wanted to understand more deeply. Why the heart and mind feel this way when everything's okay? seemingly okay, but still it's wanting something else all the time, or it's not wanting something. And this was a spiritual urgency for me at that time. I asked him, what's the meaning of my life anyway? Am I just living for survival? And he answered very directly, said the meaning of your life is to develop compassion and wisdom. It was so down-to-earth and simple. The meaning of my life is to, com uh, to be able to find that compassion and wisdom within me, develop it more, to and then to use it. So we talked about those qualities in my life um, together with Manindraji that really helped me to understand these, these are potentialities within me that are worthy of the efforts I make to, uh, to engender them. In some Buddhist traditions, wisdom and compassion are called the two great wings of the Dhamma, or the Dharma, and they're both equally important. If we didn't have compassion, we wouldn't be able to open to the first noble truth, which then opens us to the truth of the cause of suffering and then to the truth of the end of suffering and how we can get to the end of suffering through the Four Noble Truths, uh, the, the Eightfold Noble Path. So they're both equally important. One strengthens the others and um, this great bird of liberation can really fly free. came across uh, this reading by the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He says, Now a few words on the combination of wisdom and compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, these are considered the two most important aspects of practice. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly, a very compassionate person without wisdom is only a likable fool. <laughs> and a person with wisdom and no compassion is like a lonely hermit in an ivory tower. 
Both will reinforce each other, though, once we realize how interrelated they are. It is hard not to feel some level of compassion, and once we feel compassionate to others, we realize our interconnectedness. And that continues on to develop wisdom. So this Dhamma means the truth of how it is. It's so simple. And this is what we're learning every day as we bring awareness to the unfolding moment, moment by moment, seeing the ever-deepening truths of life. It's not easy to open to and accept what's difficult, those painful feelings in the body, the heart pain. Um, Of course, Manindra from India told me once that in India, dukkha means heart pain. You know, not physical heart, but the sorrows that we want to not have, the joys that we want to last forever. This is dukkha. This is heart pain. This is what we're opening to here, to all of this nature, this constant unfolding of how it is, moment by moment. This is nature in its raw form. So in these rare conditions of more quiet and stillness in the outer environment and the relative solitude and lessened distraction, thankfully, that we have, uh, the inner life can be seen more clearly. And we may want to get away from it because it's not so happy producing all the time, but it's something that we really need to take a look at. We open to what's going on beneath the outer layer of busyness I've been talking about. And sometimes what we see are many beautiful experiences, many beautiful qualities of mind that we actually have. They say in the Dhamma that when we're aware of these beautiful, strong qualities, beneficial qualities of mind, it actually enlivens them, it actually nourishes them. And when we see the kilesas, the defilements, it actually weakens them. And I see that's true because there's a growing wisdom that there are various qualities that help us bring more happiness and peace in our lives. So we incline towards them more. And then with discernment, with wisdom, we see that certain qualities don't bring us peace and happiness. They bring us the opposite. So we we let them go. We sort of uh, practice a kind of renunciation that sometimes we feel is aversion, but it's like the wise uh, mind that says, this isn't helpful. Don't nourish it. So we open to what's going on beneath the surface of things, and we also open to the fact of how vulnerable we are. And this isn't easy sometimes for us because everything's changing all the time. We're so constant bombard, constantly bombarded with this constant flux in conditions around us, within us and around us, that we have reactivity to that. And it's hard to stay with that, too. We're born into this world of great vulnerability. And I like when I hear 
it really tunes into my own reality as a human being uh, that dukkha is vulnerability because it contains this understanding of this constant flux and this seeing of this uncontrollability of life. We, we have a wisdom, we have compassion to be able to respond to life and that gives us some great influence but not complete control. So vulnerability is what we open to in life. So conditions at every level, I mentioned this before, can leave us feeling quite shaky, vulnerable. Situations in the world around us, of course, economic, political, militarily, agriculturally, one affecting each other. The unrest and injustice in the world, the social and economic injustice around racism, gender bias of all kinds, ageism, and much, much more. It's something we just, it's a fact of life. The elements of earth, air, water, and fire constantly affecting one another, changing the environment of this um, beautiful earth. So we have to be responsible. We have to take some responsibility for that and see how we can help one another. How can we help this environment, this earth? So of course the vulnerability of our body is affected by all of the above and the natural processes of aging and sickness that we're all open to. We're all affected by. Each one of us can talk about something going on in our lives, ourselves or somebody close, where there has been death in the family, or there's sickness in the family, or, and or impending death. So the mind and the heart, in the deepening practice here, are beginning to notice deep patterns, you know, that keep us kind of on the edge of this... Um, vulnerability all the time. And then we also notice that this continuity of awareness can help us feel stable actually among the amongst the vulnerability that we experience. Sometimes we're taken by surprise and overwhelmed by how stubbornly rooted and unrelenting this change is. Just some Sometimes we just keep on going, and as um, I've heard here and elsewhere, we just keep opening to what's called the first noble truth, dukkha satcha, the truth of suffering, which includes the truth of change. And all of a sudden, we can get to a tipping point where it just really opens us up to how... um, it feels like sometimes I can take a step and I just might fall through what I think is solid. Or sometimes in practicing, uh, maybe a little more long-term, and open my eyes and it feels like I can just put my hand through a wall. I really can't, but it just seems like, in this level of existence, but it just seems like 
everything's just so pulsating all the time. And there is a seeming solidity in space, a seeming solidity in space, etc. So it really feels vulnerable and it takes a lot of compassion and strength and stability of awareness to open to all of that. There's um, this story about this scientist who walks around with really huge slippers because he thinks he might fall through um, the solidity, because he's seen it, the solidity, scientifically. So there's one of my teachers who's been on the sidelines a lot, um, because when Sayadawji Pandita was alive, all the other teachers were on the sidelines. <laughs> and you reported to Sayadaw Pandita, except when he wasn't there. So one time I attended um, a retreat, and one of my most beloved teachers is Bilin Sayadaw. He comes from that place in Burma, so we call him Bilin Sayadaw. And uh, he never said very much, but he was just the kindest, kindest person to me. And one time I went to him, and it was a really, really difficult retreat. I think a lot of my retreats have been really, really difficult. And when I look back, I think, you know, I never learned much from just hanging out in beautiful states of mind. (laughs) But I learned a lot by opening to dukkha. And so I went to him and reported to him that it was really hard. It was just so hard to see the vulnerability around and inside my heart. And like, who am I anyway? You know, what, what is this all about? And um, opening to the dukkha of life, that I was, the life I was living in, but also the dukkha of seeing the pain in my heart about it all. And um, he didn't say much at all, but he said the thing of equanimity. He just said, that's how it is, isn't it? That's about all he said. (laughs) And um, I couldn't say much in relation to, I just remember my kneeling there in front of him and I couldn't do anything but agree with him, you know? And it was just his ability to know himself. That's how it is. And just being with that kind of presence really, really held my practice, which the other teachers also gave me, but somehow, you know, conditions were such that I could really feel it and be there with it This is how it is, isn't it? That's how it is, isn't it? And that's our equanimity phrase that takes a lot of compassion to say. It's not just like one bold statement that says, you know, um, take it in, that's how it is, get with the the program, you know. So he was telling me that mindful awareness is not enough to open to this. It really takes compassion. That's what he was telling me in his stance. It takes compassion to open to this first noble truth, to this dukkha satcha. 
So the other evening I talked just about compassion, described as the basic goodness of heart, the basic goodwill that we all have and we're engendering more and more of, uh, that turns to whatever is painful and then it becomes compassion, it becomes karuna. And then with that kind of tenderness, we're able to come close to what's hard inside and we're able to come close to what's hard, difficult on the outside in our world. So we can actually go towards that kindness, with kindness towards that difficulty instead of shivering and being fearful of doing that. So we are able to connect with whatever is happening with that unconditional kindness of compassion. And I imparted to you also, it's described as a quivering of the heart that faces suffering, that goes towards suffering. It's this heart that quivers because it gives us a signal to go forth, that there's energy to do that with. We can go forth. We can touch that suffering, whether it's out there or in here, in our own hearts. I love the um, green Tara in Tibetan Buddhism, in that feminine divine aspect of compassion where the right uh, leg and, and her foot is just ready, it's halfway out there. It's not resting in repose, but it's just ready to step into action. And that's why it's said in the Theravada tradition, the tradition that I've been raised in, is that um, it's not only a feeling of compassion, like sometimes we see things happening and there's a, a felt sense inside of compassion for the world or for ourselves, but it's actually taking action as well. So it isn't devoid of the action-taking. In fact, uh, one of our great, um, he's a German monk, and he's uh, learned a lot from being in Sri Lanka. And he studied the suttas a lot, really in-depth, Venerable Analayo. And he said, actually, compassion is not complete, according to the suttas, unless there is action that we actually give it energy, give it action. So we're ready to act, and um, on this level of existence, on the relative level of existence, it's really impossible to do that. So we learn to be really honest with ourselves in facing what's difficult to bear because of compassion opening to parts of ourselves that we need to wake up to, that we're not used to waking up to. Feelings and states of mind that we haven't acknowledged, maybe. Shame and prejudice, judging ourselves, judging others for being different than ourselves or different than what we think the norm should be, and not really taking time to see more deeply into people's hearts. There's that dismissiveness right away. We face these things that um, we're living with and we try to cover up because it's so hard to be with sometimes the truths of how we are. 
So, of course, there are the beautiful qualities, too, that sometimes it's even harder to open to, to admit to. You know, a lot of um, yogis tell me that when I say, well, um, remember the goodness of this person, or remember the goodness of yourself, I get responses like, oh, that's kind of weird. Uh, that's a little bit awkward, because we don't go there normally. But it's important to try to go there. I mean, in the beginning, I just remember back when I would hear that, and I, and I heard them, the proximate cause for metta to arise is remembering the good. So I thought, okay, that's a good reason <laughs> to remember the good about myself, about others, because maybe then I could have better mindfulness, better awareness. And so the only good I could think about, like when I was in retreat, was I'm still here. I haven't left yet. You know, I'm still, I'm just doing the best I can. And sometimes I still say that, you know, when I'm here offering the practice. That's what I can easily go back to. So we, we start to see these patterns opening to our goodness, gratitude, to the places we can forgive, generosity, that integrity that we have to hold all of it together. It takes a fair amount of compassion to open to both the beautiful and the difficult tormenting qualities of our hearts. So, With our rational minds, we know these patterns are related to greed, hatred, and delusion. These um, difficult qualities of mind, they're so harmful, yet they're so deeply rooted that it's, it's just so difficult to sort of let go of them, be aware of them in a way that they naturally let go of themselves, meaning that uh, awareness simply sees the impermanent nature of them. There's no me letting go of anything. It's just awareness seeing impermanence. That's the deep letting go, that wisdom that is being seen. So we get to have this growing sense um, that just as we see this in ourselves, we understand this for others too, that there is suffering. There is suffering. There is the truth of suffering. And that's the great connection that we have with ourselves and everyone else. I might have mentioned this before, but it's worthy of repeating. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, said, until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourself, there will be a measure of hypocrisy. There will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. We think we're compassionate, but until we see it on ourselves, it's just really not that deep. So just as it opened the compassion and wisdom of the Buddha, turning our hearts and minds to suffering opens that in ourselves as well. And so we get this growing urgency to do what we can for others, to touch humanity, and just be really human. You know, we don't have to spout the Dharma. (laughs) We can just be 
downright just kind to ourselves and others. That opens our hearts a lot, touching the earth with kindness. And that opens to wisdom. And you all know that equally as strong is the spiritual urgency to go within. That's why we're here. We want to see what's going on inside. It's hard to bear, it's hard to see, but we're doing it. We're going there and we're simply recognizing and more and more relaxing around that inner landscape in a more deeply balanced way, getting interested in this unfolding of nature. You might have recognized when I've been giving you the instructions that I'm going through that acronym RAIN. Have any of you noticed that? Relax, recognize, allow what's happening to happen. Get interested in what's going on. It brings you closer. And then realize that everything's nature. It helps us to not get so like personalize things and feel bad about ourselves. So in the course of doing what we're able to experience, we get this clear view of how it actually is, the Dhamma. It takes sobering honesty, at times unflinching courage, and we, those are beautiful qualities of your hearts when you do this, even for moments at a time. Those qualities are being developed honesty, unflinching courage, to see the underpinnings of what we call the personality. Um, it's painful to see our personality. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.